this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor at the Altamont Enterprise, here this morning with William H. Frake III. We have just come from Cindy Pollard's Homefront Cafe, where there was another warm-hearted gathering of veterans. One of the guests of honor today was Francis Curry, the Medal of Honor winner, who was there with his wife about to celebrate their 70th wedding anniversary. Cindy looked beautiful, red lipstick, blue scarf, white coat, very patriotic as always. And we have a man who has captured the spirit of the Homefront Cafe. I've been writing for years about these same people. Sir Bill from Boriesville, Millard Orsini and his flag, the guys that were at Iwo Jima and meet for breakfast. But he has captured them not just in words, but in drawings. He tells stories with drawings. Welcome Welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, for the wonderful time up here this morning with breakfast in Altamont, New York. I, I love this town. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, town that I enjoy coming back and forth to to visit the friends and, and veterans here in the town. Well, the thing um, I'd like to talk to you about to start with is just a little about your life. This book serves in the beginning as kind of an autobiography. His latest book is called a moment and a memory and it's the second in a series and um i borrowed this copy from cindy cindy pollard and um i thought you know i just flipped through it i'm gonna get a few ideas i read every single page it is riveting and it starts out saying i draw stories and that is exactly what you do and it gives a little bit of your biography and your life growing up but if you could just tell us in words a little about um your father and grandfather and the taxis and the western just a little about your life growing up and (laughs) well when i was a small child um my father uh was a veteran in in uh in d-day in the pacific uh after d-day and they never didn't talk too much about the war they just kind of put it behind them and as i talked to my grandfather and and my father and brother his brothers and my uncles uh they started to tell me little bitty stories that were of great interest to me but they would never tell me the complete stories so and because i didn't have the knowledge of reading on uh, the subject of world war ii uh, i didn't know what to ask them so it's like a computer if you don't know what buttons to push you don't know what information you're going to get so my uncle who ran the taxi service in fort dix in the 1940s hired my um, my dad when he was about 14 or 15 and they would ride around before fort dix was even built in muddy streets and wooden buildings and they would deliver telegrams and during the, the whole time as they started to um, stock up fort dix for the for the for the war um my grandfather would have a taxi service to take people to Philadelphia, and my father would would uh, get to visit all the new units that came in. And eventually he joined up uh, in 1942, uh, right after December 7th had happened in January, I think it was, and in 42. And so this is right after Pearl Harbor. Right after bomb. Pearl Harbor. And all the brothers signed up, and there's about four, I made five brothers. So... Um, because they all lived far away, I didn't get a chance to ask a lot of questions. And every time I'd asked a veteran, 
the same kind of stories. They wouldn't talk about it. They just said, oh, let's go to the barbecue and have a good time. And I was so curious. And as they got older, they started to talk a little bit about these stories and to um, enrich everybody with what they had seen in their lifetime and the great deeds and amazing moments of this period of history. And I was just amazed that the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't know. And I kept doing sketches, uh, which I'd done earlier and started at Walt Disney Studios. And I started drawing with all my training. Uh, it was a shorthand note. I didn't have to write words. I could draw a picture to express a paragraph. So I could draw faster than I could write. And with all of the work and stuff that I did, it was my wife that basically said, uh, you really have to share this work with the veterans. I know you give them away when you go see them, but the rest of the, the world would love to see these. So um, my daughter helped me with the designing of the book, uh, Cassandra. And it was kind of a family affair. You know, my wife helped me proof it. And uh, it's very much like a, a sketchbook notebook of all my travels with the World War II veterans uh, throughout my lifetime. And it has that feeling of a sketchbook. Is your daughter Cassandra, is she the one you were talking about that was studying in Florence? Uh, that's another daughter. Different daughter. Different. So they're all very artistic. Very artistic. Isn't that great? Well, um, what I wonder, too, you mentioned drawing for Disney, but if you could just back up and tell us about yourself as an artist, too. In the book, it has little vignettes from what seemed like an idyllic childhood mm-hmm. where um, you would go and pick up a comic book and that was what interested you and yet you talk about hanging out in your father's shop I guess where you and your friends would build go-karts and you rate that they've now become movie producers and all kinds of things but just tell us a little about yourself as a kid and how you became an artist okay my uh, I grew up in Montclair New Jersey I was born there and my mother uh, was a nurse for the American Red Cross, and she came there in 1938 and uh, 39, and she started to work with the American Red Cross in the town. And my dad, um, again at Fort Dix, had had met um, uh, met a, uh, another radio guy there, and brought he brought him home, and that's where my mom was. They met together at this dinner. And she eventually was renting uh, a place in Montclair, New Jersey, so my father would come back on leave from the, the war and come to visit. And that became our family home. They eventually purchased it, and I lived there all my life. So my entire history was also mixed in with her history. Uh, and my mom came from Pennsylvania, uh, Gettysburg area, so it was a history of Civil War. And my, um, my dad uh, came from Mount Holly, New Jersey, by Fort Dix. So as a little child, I went around this idyllic uh, kind of Rockwellian, Norman Rockwell kind of town with little drug stores, little comic book stores, and different, and different locations that were so kind of Americana, romanticized, um, almost like It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> so I, I love that film, but it's something where uh, all my first experiences when I first saw a comic, it was because it was so bright and so colorful. And my father is a very interesting moment there because I went to pick up an artist, which I became to admire. His name is Joe Kubert. And I looked at the artwork. It was just absolutely amazing artwork. And to this day, still one of the best guys out there. I, I work with the people from Marvel Studios in the past, too. Um, 
who've done all the, the, the feature films recently. But the uh, my dad would say, to put that comic down, and my your mother wants you to read classic stories, and that's that's kind of a rag mag. And I'm like, what's a rag mag? He said, well, it's not worth reading. It's, it's junk. And at the time, in the 30s, they were really... Nobody had an interest in comics, and they were so uh, cheap. They were like ten cents, twelve cents. But my dad would buy a pack of cigarettes, Lucky's, at the same place, Lucky Strike, which he learned to smoke during the war. And um, yes, Lucky Strike Lucky went, to war went to war and war. ended up with a different <laughs> colored package. Green, yeah, to right. Red, yeah, to white. To, yeah. So he he would literally give me, if I was lucky, a quarter, which would give me one comic. And maybe a small candy bar, and I started to read inadvertently, which I didn't realize was going to be my future. And the gentleman there was saying, "Why behind the stand? Why don't you uh, you buy cigarettes? Why don't you get your kid a comic?" And he says, "I don't, I don't like war." And he said, "Oh, it's, it was during Viet, the early parts of Vietnam." And he said, "War's not good." And, all, and I didn't understand the argument between these two guys. He said, "Oh, you're one of those guys that's against the war." And he said, yeah, I'm against the war, but it was an opinion. I didn't know politically things. So this occurred quite a few times as he walked in. And finally, the guy says, I want, he said, just give the kid a comic. You get cigarettes, give him a comic. And uh, he said, I'll get him a comic if I want. And um, basically, he said, well, were you in the war to my dad? He said, yeah, I was in D-Day and Okinawa and Iwo Jima. And the gentleman stopped and stared at him and said, I am so sorry, sir. I didn't know. He said, yeah, that's the reason why I don't like war. What I saw, I don't like. And he said, I don't want him to read about that. There's enough time to read about happy stuff. And he said, why don't you pick a Superman? And so I picked up a Superman. And it was painted on his ship. He said he painted it on the ship going into Normandy. And he was a 20-millimeter gunner going into the beaches of Omaha Beach. And uh, for June, the early parts of June, June 6th. And all of the stuff that started to come out that story, and then he stopped again for a long time. He didn't talk. It brought back, I guess, memories. But in the evenings, when he came home from work, he'd, to relax, he'd go out to our garage and had a little wood shop. And he would teach us how to work on wood and tie knots and everything he learned pretty much during the war, I think. And he uh, taught us how to build things. So we started building tree houses and, and uh, little go-karts. And all the kids started to come over. And all the kids came over very, very creative. And some of the guys, uh, one guy's a photographer at Raceway Park now in New Jersey. Another one has uh, just finished the movie The Grinch as an art director. Uh, I'm working on a film now with um, Will Smith. It's a Spies in Disguise. And everybody really ended up... Um, going into their passions and that little garage and the wood shop uh, really started us to be creative and I can't thank my dad and the rest of the people from World War II of um, how to live your life and how short life is and enjoy every moment and talk to your friends and be close to your friends have meals with them this holiday time is really a good time to experience that kind of closeness try to do that all throughout the year and you too I think can get your own little stories and and Try and draw them up. Well, what's remarkable about that is how these boyhood friends of yours, you've clearly stayed friends with them for a lifetime. Yes. In yes. this kind of mobile, modern American world, that's, that's rare. It's very much. So one of the things you say in your book about learning to draw, and I'm, forgive me, I'm going to mispronounce this man's name. You said Stephen 
Chokaska? Uh, Choka. Choka. Okay, I did mispronounce it. Um, He was a World War I Austro-Hungarian soldier. Tell us about him and how he influenced your drawing. When I left high school, I mean, it goes back just a little bit before to set it up, um, I played lacrosse. We Montclair lacrosse as state champs, and, and uh, you know we were managing and playing and stuff, and summer leagues. And we had um, uh, the coach there really taught the young men in that group uh, how to be a team and how to follow your passions. And he made he would tell one of the, the captains that you know you'd be a really good stock trader, you'd be a really good truck driver or something funny and he said to me he said you you got talent in cartooning i said cartooning because i used to do little sketches of the lacrosse team that was my first sketches so i did those and i put them aside and went to uh fine arts and a little bit of medicine down in, in virginia at the end of high school and then um they told me all the jobs are in new york I'm like, why are you down here? And I thought, oh, boy. So I went to New York, back to New York. (laughs) And um, I ended up meeting, uh, going into fine arts again there, because that was my passion. I don't think medicine was as interesting to work on uh, cadavers. I mean, I wasn't really into that. So I ended up um, going to this college called Fashion Institute. And it was advertising and fashion. So I worked with all the magazines, kind of Mad Men with uh, Madison Avenue. And uh, when I was there, one of my teachers was astounding. Uh, his name is Stephen Choka. He was an Austro-Hungarian First World War veteran. And basically, he had been captured as a prisoner of war in 1914, 15. And uh, throughout the war, he basically lived his life and saved his life by doing drawings of the guards that would probably shoot him. He said, I'll do a drawing, don't shoot us. And he came. He left uh, Europe in 1933 before World War II started. He said, "I can't. Another war is brewing." He told me, and basically he said that if I don't leave, I do not want to see the second one. So he came to America and just painted walls. He painted houses, and but he could paint from the National Gallery. He has now work in the Met and the and Brooklyn Museum, and he was classically trained by the turn of the century by many many famous famous artists. And he used to buy and sell. Um, Monet's and Cezanne's to the royal families in in, uh, Hungary, which used to be a huge um, estates. So they would purchase all these paintings at the time that weren't that valuable, 1912, 13. Nobody wanted abstract. They thought it was kind of junky. And it was really hard to understand. So realism was, for centuries, was the artwork. So the realistic artist felt that you know, these new guys coming in, it's almost like a sketch artist or computer artist. Like, these guys are taking over my career. So they kind of tried to ban the Impressionist. And Stephen used to talk to me about Impressionist and how he would end up in Europe. He'd have to paint what the governments wanted. So he told me, he said he, he wanted to paint what an artist wants to paint. He came to America to be free and paint what he wanted. So he taught me all of these tricks of the trade of, like, if you want to go and get, like, draw like Degas, you go and get some sepia from Italy and break up the stone and make it into your chalks, add oil and, you know, vest, uh, you know, and, and take tissues and butcher paper and, and color them with um, leftover oil paints from the ma- paint, paintings when you're doing portraits and make your own paper because there was no art supply store. So they taught me. How so you to, start with the actual same materials same that materials these masters used. Oh, masters. my gosh. So he taught me really from the ground up. So when I learned all of this, 
Years later, I went. It was called up to work at Walt Disney Studios, and the the old timers there, the nine old men that had taught me, uh, quite a few had, had already retired, but they'd show back up and, and work with us. But um, they were amazed at my ability in life drawing, and my ability of, of sketching, and the draftsmanship I had. He said, "You know, you're in your early twenties, but you draw like you've been around for like." 80 years. And <laughs> so I it was kinda, this training. The training. Yeah. It was such a classical training. And that has, has grounded me throughout my entire career for all the movies that I've worked on. So I can't, again, it's a World War I vet that taught me and a World War II vet. Yes, I was going to ask about Harlan. Now, let's see if I can do his name better. Wimble? Mm-hmm. Okay. Twimble. And you said in your book, yes. along with the drawing, you said that he taught you to never give up and never quit. So yeah. tell us well, about that. Harlan. When I met him, um, somebody mentioned in the movie Jaws, Quinn. And he said, Harland, I think reference they used uh, the guys from the USS Indianapolis. I think Harland was a guy that uh, pretty sure that they used for reference for Quinn and Jaws. And that's where he talks about the tattoo and uh, the ship going down and for five days in the shark infested waters. Um, the because sharks, he experienced that himself during yes. the war. And he said when that boat went down, the destroyer went down, it was sunk by a Japanese uh, submarine, that it went down in 12 minutes. Uh, he was ordered to abandon ship. And as the 1,300 sailors went into the water, uh, after five days, there was only 300 left. The sharks had eaten all of them. So um, when they finally got, it was so top secret, they didn't even know they were there. And... The movie Jaws, they talk, um, Quinn talks about the ship and his tattoo and where his scar came from and why he hates sharks. And all of a sudden I realized, wow, Jaws' film was tied to this guy that I visited. And we started to talk about it. And he told me about how when they were alone at sea, no hope, no nothing, how spiritual he got and how he never gave up. And the ones that gave up didn't survive. And... You can achieve anything if your mind says, don't give up, be persistent. And no matter what you think you can't achieve, you can achieve it. So I applied that in my career that uh, here comes a deadline. Here comes, you know, uh, I've got to do something in an incredibly crazy time. I may not be able to do it all myself, but can I get people to help me? Can I do this and use it as a team? And you can achieve anything in your life. And a very, very grounding, positive feelings that this uh, Harlan had... Um, had talked to me about, and he, he brought out a watch that he had, which is in the book, and it was stopped at 12.03. He said when he hit the water, it stopped the salt water of the Pacific, stopped his watch at 12.03 when the ship went down. And he showed it. He said, this is the watch I was wearing in the ocean when the sharks were attacking us. And it was such a, almost like a holistic moment of touching. It was like energy from an almost like feelings. <laughs> I'm like, wow. And he told his son, this has got to be in the National Archives. Why is it still in my jewelry box? And so it went over to the archives. But it's something where, over the years, all these amazing stories of these individuals that went through so much struggle of the Great Depression and just surviving uh, destruction all over from, from uh, North Africa to Italy to, to, um, to Europe and France and Japan and all the islands. Um, you can learn so much about how to... Uh, struggle, how to understand struggle um, uh, and survival of anything you do in your life that you can you can achieve and become anything and you realize what they went through the, the toughest thing you think you've gone through is not tough and you, you become very relaxed when you realize 
know, maybe maybe what I'm going through today is not that hard. And it's like, well, and I think about the new guys, like Afghanistan and stuff. And I'm driving in a coal car, and I'm driving in the morning. This morning, I left at around 5.36 to drive up here. And it took about two and a half hours. And, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, and I realized, wait a second, I'm in a car with heated seats. I'm driving. It's cold. But there's guys in the trenches now that have been fighting for 20 years that don't have what I have. And stop thinking you're having a rough time this morning. So when I get here, I realize, you know, every time you realize life's not that hard, just be persistent. And if something is tough, you can always get through it. So it's a matter of perspective. perspective. I like that. Well, one of the things, though, you do that's so remarkable is you you take these really serious situations, but you find humor. Like, isn't there a picture in this book of someone watching TV years later and seeing that very... Uh, boat you were talking about, you know, with the yes. shark-infested waters being, like, raised up and discovered. Yes, it, and it makes it like a comic picture, yeah. the, the way you wow. render it. But yet, there's this layer of seriousness and pathos. I mean, the book goes back and forth between, you said, I think, somewhere in maybe the introduction you wanted to make veterans smile or even have a belly laugh and there are pictures that do that i was laughing out loud but there are also moments where you i I mean you get teared up and you get um there's one where um there's a veteran waiting for a visitor to come Mm. and it looks like the visitor isn't coming. And what I liked to try to do as I was going through is I like to try to look at the pictures Mm -hmm. before I read your words because the pictures tell you so much that then the words, after you've sort of thought of your own interpretation, kind of form like a gloss on that. And I wondered if you could just tell us about the process. Mm -hmm. Like when you're... Doing this as an artist, do you, uh, you say you tell stories with pictures, but do you like, how does it come to you? Does it come as an image and then the words? Or, I'm such a word person. I just yeah. I wonder about your process. It becomes, it's a vision. Uh, I have a very photographic memory. But it's a vision, <clears throat> like going back to the first things you were questioning with uh, Harlan Twibble. Um, I was sitting in New York, and I, on the television, it was like Jim, James Ballard, who discovered the Titanic, has just gone down into the Pacific, um, into South, South uh, Philippine Sea, and they located the USS Indianapolis. And I'm like, that's Harlan's ship. Oh, my gosh. And I said, that's the ship that went down that these guys had not seen and understood how it, what happened to it. And there was only about 22 guys left, if that. <clears throat> and they're riveted to the TV on National Geographic. And they're literally studying the ship that they have not seen that went down at that time. It's on the bottom of the ocean. And I said, oh, my gosh. So I immediately did a drawing of Harlan watching TV as that's being discovered, what his reaction So the image came to you came first. To like, how would he feel yeah. seeing this? Yeah. yeah it's and, powerful. And, but it, it's got a little note of humor at the same time. I don't yeah. know how you make those two. I went online to look at some of your, I guess, one of your most famous characters is Scrat. Is that mm-hmm. the squirrel? Yeah. And, like, I tried to think of the same man creating that, which is this very... Um, 
um, you're sympathetic with this <laughs> this little squirrel because he can't get the nut in the ground, yeah. and he ends up cracking this whole layer of ice that then pursues him. So it has that same kind of funniness, but yet the same sense of oh my god, what's mm. going to happen? Yes. So well, most most of the ideas are um, to to see a situation and get a read on it that that um, I will take a character performance and basically go ahead and um, once I've done the drawing, it's really hard to put words to it because the drawings describe the words. So it's basically something to where I have um, really enjoyed... um, uh, I learned from the great guys at Disney's how to do very quick gesture sketches that you capture in time uh, a moment of action and a frame of time that basically you can feel like you're, you've lived in that Yeah, it puts you right there. Well, what do you call this style? Is it ha- It's like a sketch, but then it, it has an overlay of how do you, how do you physically make that? Well, that, that usually goes into... Um, um, sorry, that's... <laughs> fire department stuff. Because uh, you're a volunteer firefighter, volunteer firefighter too. Yeah, which means <laughs> it's like, well, I guess I can't help anybody here. Anyway, <laughs> I'm too far away. But, um, uh, that that too amazed me. I read that somewhere, and it just seemed like, uh, you know, I we write about volunteer firefighters all the time, but you think of a Disney artist as someone not part of that mm. on the ground world. I, what, what's amazing is I love to help people. I love to understand to take away people's pain. And I love to understand what, uh, what feelings that people have that I can kind of um, make them store as a, um, make them store as a um, maybe a book or a sketch that they can forever capture the moment of time that that happened. So it's like a life photographer in the 40s that they're able to capture a picture of this moment of history that is just framed, pictured, and everybody can look at it and feel they were there. And Cindy has those all over her cafe, the yes. kiss in Times Square after yeah. VJ Day, uh, and those those moments that mm-hmm. you, they become iconic, and yes. like we all relate to them, even though we weren't there. And yeah. it's where you are at the time of that moment. Um, you could be in that moment, could be far away, and it doesn't, but your mind takes you right to that spot. So the idea of like that kiss in Times Square. Somebody was right there close enough to take it, and then they framed it to, to make you really feel um, the ability to um, understand that you were there. And, and you were there during 1945 of VJ Day. And even somebody could see it 100 years later, and you feel like you're there. That's the power of photography, which is sketches are a very quick way of, you don't have a camera. Your, so you were going to tell me about camera. the technique. How, what, what is that? The technique on these, I'm actually using the Cintiq which is a computer. Oh, that surprises me because they look so spontaneous and the opposite of what I can consider. Like. <laughs> well, some, some are sketches from sketchbooks, but yeah. the idea of a Cintiq is I can now do the line work, I can put tone down, I can do all these tools without markers. There's no mess. Yeah. So I can literally, if I don't like the tone, I can pull it back, I can change it. So I can draw these a lot quicker uh, and I draw small, quick sketches. I'll, I'll go in the evening when I fall asleep. I'll have little alpha state drawings. I'll draw almost as I'm falling asleep, and little sketches, uh, falling asleep, little sketches. And those sketches, I'll bring them in the morning, and I can draw a drawing that almost guarantees will be picked by the directors. 
because it's a very deep state of mind, and it's so deep in the vision that when the directors look at that, I like that one. That's, I really feel like I'm in the movie on that one. And it's because I was in my dreams. Oh, my. So, when so you, early morning, you mean you've just woken up and you like tap into your dream state brain. Me, as I fall asleep, I'll tap into it. That's the alpha state. And as I wake up, I'll have to immediately put notes on it because it's very abstract. It's stripes. It's lines. It's very Picasso-esque. And I believe that all the, 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 the artists of the past had these visions of simplicity that you see. You solve your problems as you fall asleep. You, you have all these thoughts and all these problems. And as you fall asleep, you start to dream in, and the rest of your body leaves. And you basically are going towards these problems and you solve them. And if you, in the morning, you remember, oh, I need to pick this keys up by the front door. That's where they're at. You may not know where your keys are, but in the dream, you'll find them. Like, yeah, alpha state, you realize, oh, the room is on the steps. I wish my dreams worked like that. <laughs> wow. But, so these visions I'll put down in sketches. And when I talk to people, um, I feel like I can transfer their thoughts and visions that they have onto my thoughts. Well, and do that's what amazed me, because I've written about these same men for years. And you do almost like a little formal frame around them when you're telling a biography of them. And it captures them in ways that with thousands of words, I'm embarrassed to say, I haven't captured. Hmm. And... Um, it's it's just remarkable. We've run through our time so fast, and there was so much more I wanted to ask you. But one of the ones that was most powerful for me, I guess we'll end with a discussion of yeah. this. Um, it, What you wrote on this picture was, um, we, uh, let's see, after four years of war, when we arrived at the camps, we knew why war was fought. We never forgot their eyes. Hmm. And that is just that drawing, and I have to look up the page number, but that oh, drawing, I, I even, when you don't, <laughs> even when you don't read the words, you just know there's yeah. some deep realization there. Yes. So yes. just tell us how you came up with that one. I, anybody that talks about the concentration camps and camps um, can't even put words to it. They just said, you wouldn't believe, they said, you cannot believe what it was and it's the amazing stare into distance that's that it the audience becomes the objective viewer and you become the camp people looking at them like oh my yes. gosh I'm being saved they're looking at me they're my saviors and basically uh, you realize um, that they are totally have been the, that image has been burned in their minds for, for the rest of eternity in their thoughts so the power of that stare, um, which I had thousand-yard stares in World War II that when they were transformed into a vision, they never forgot those moments. And all you have to do is you are that energy in front of these soldiers as you are the event that they're staring at. So you, you, everything you know about that event, you know they're looking at you and everything you know they're... It's it's going back and forth in the eyes and the storytelling. Right, and you do that because the barbed wire gates are open, and you, the viewer, are standing on the other side of the, inside the barbed camp. wire gates as yes. these liberators holding their guns and looking... Ah, oh, I can't put a word to it. It's not just that they're tired. They look... What? Um, sagacious. They look like 
they've seen something. See, it's hard to put words to the Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so powerful. That picture struck me as one of the most powerful. And the other one that I wanted to ask you about, um, I, I wrote the word poetic because um, I dabble in poetry. But the picture did the poem more. Um, their lines of battle ran like trenches in their faces as they got older. Here, I'll just find the page, 349. But... Um, you talk about in the book throughout it, and it's got a humorous streak about how this is the hard battle, you know, the old age battle. Um, what these veterans who suffered all those years ago, I should have brought my glasses so I could find the page numbers. Um, I, remember, I remember the cartoon, I have it memorized. Okay, good. There we are. Um, so tell us about coming up with that drawing. Well, when I went to the battlefields of Europe, it was like wrinkles on the earth of like Mother Earth that the age and the history of all of these wrinkles of the mountains and trenches and all these things that are marked into the earth that have so many stories that people never really as you walk through them um, you don't see them when you're upon them you have to project yourself which I do you have to project yourself up into the sky and look down Um, so when you project yourself and look down you realize the earth has wrinkles and so do we. We're tied to the earth. And the idea of these veterans have been hard living in the sun. They've, any person that like grapes of wrath or any has a hard story on their face, you can tell by somebody's face how they live their stories. And that's where when I see these gentlemen, I, I look at how somebody has, has been stern all their life or somebody smiled the wrinkle lines. And it tells you the story. All of these veterans, when I see them, I can see their stories on their on their faces by how their faces uh, have moved, like the earth. And it's things that um, all of these little moments, um, it's my observations that I learned from, from the great artists that I've worked with in my lifetime, how to look at something beyond the viewing of it, but getting into the spirit of it. And that's the thing that I've learned um, over the years is go out and, and learn how to understand that spirit. Uh, the drawing will come to you. You can't learn it all, your, but you have to learn how to understand, how to view life. And that's, that's kind of where I see, when I see their faces, I view their stories. That's wonderful. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. And there was, there was a gentleman, the Curry, who came, the Medal of Honor, yes. came today. Yes, I opened um, the last podcast night, with him. Um, I got a call from Mark England, and... Um, he said, guess what? There's a surprise. You're going to have a Medal of Honor guy come to your book signing. <clears throat> and I thought, wow, this is great. I, I hadn't really met Medal of Honors. They're always at a distance to be able I mean, I'm always busy doing things. So um, I always, uh, uh, he described some of the story. So I looked it up on the Internet. And I studied some of the understanding of the story. At 8 o'clock, I got home at 6, 7 o'clock. So for about two hours... Um, I sat down and started to begin a sketch uh, of what Mark had told me. And then I studied who he was, what it was, before I met the gentleman. And so I did this drawing of the most traumatic part of his life, or one of the many, but where he won the Medal of Honor. And I had traveled the battlefields where he was when I was in Europe. I traveled in Malmody. I traveled the little bridges, the actual bridge that he had gone across, or that protected uh, I've traveled the roads, and I've talked to some of the German soldiers that fought against him, and i talked to the soldiers that fought with the Americans, or, uh, you know, that fought with um, Francis. 
And <clears throat> so by my ability to understand how they talked about both sides and the weather, um, what the weather was like. Because I walked those fields uh, almost with the veterans, I did, but um, almost as if I was a veteran too. Like I, I transcended my, my time into this period. <clears throat> so I ended up um, knowing when he told me this story, Mark had told me, and I started reading how to draw it. So much like what I did in the book, I spent two hours to do a sketch, which I gave him to gave him. So tell us the story and describe the sketch. What it was was uh, he had mentioned Francis had mentioned that um, they were sent to a bridge to protect it, not expecting a light resistance. And he got to the bridge and they set up the trenches, which are little small foxholes. And he was on the side of the bridge, um, protecting a little road with a bridge, and figuring it's going to be troops. Well, very shortly after, all these, the Battle of the Bulge had started, it was December 21st in Belgium and the Ardennes, that he had um, been at this, the, that he was right in front of the spear tip, spear tip of the German invasion coming across this little bridge. And it was tank after tank after tank, many tanks coming, and it was almost overwhelming. And he basically, <clears throat> as a tank rolled up right next to him, the German soldier looked down at Francis and reacted like, oh my gosh. And then uh, Francis, who had been trained as an officer in many different types of weapons, uh, had fired his BAR weapon at the, um, uh, at the German officer that was out of the top of the turret. He dropped down, and then they, the tanks started to uh, veer off, knowing that they had hit, hit the, the American lines. And the battle began, so he just fought from there uh, and saved five. He destroyed three tanks uh, by using bazookas and uh, grenades and uh, saved five soldiers um, that were basically uh, surrounded. And then he fought house to house for days. And the battle wasn't over until mid-January, so from December 21st to middle of January, it was almost three and a half weeks of 24 hours fighting at night when there's no lights, not knowing where, where people are, the lines are changing. And I've walked these battlefields with all the different units, the 101st Band of Brothers guys, and all the different things that you walk the battlefield. So I understood the feeling of um, where that was. So I had that kind of spiritual connection. So I'm and just turning to see the sketch. That I gave to Frank Curry this morning that I did last night in two hours. Wow. So this is a sketch where the tanks dominate and they're they're huge and look (laughs) impenetrable. And then the bridge looks so very small. And there's a man who I'm assuming must be Francis in the lower corner who is watchful and waiting. Wow. And those little bridges I've been across are very, very small. There was no such thing as tanks when they made those little bridges. It was only for carts and cows and uh, traveling. It's little villages. So when these big tanks, which are the 21st century, couldn't make it across the bridges. So a lot of the bridges were destroyed. They had to go across the little streams. So I've walked the streams. I've walked the bridges. And that's why I can draw what this is because I've lived in this spot. When he talks about certain things, I've been there. So I said, well, that little bridge, you know, that little rock that was on the other side? And he's staring at me like, how would I know where that is? You're a visionary. Is? So it's like seeing the past and the future. Well, do you have any closing thoughts for us 
Well, let me, I can plug the book. Sure, <laughs> let's do that. Where can people get the book? You can uh, order the book through, um, called A Moment and a Memory, at P.O. Box 1550, um, Carmel, C-A-R-M-E-L, New York, 10512. Um, and um, you can ship, I'll, I'll ship them out. Um, and I can, I can, uh, they're $30, $30. You can pick them up on Amazon, so it's the price uh, a little bit below. But um, it's uh, $39.99 for the first edition and $59.95 for the second edition. And <clears throat> I'm sure on Amazon it'll start getting cheaper as it goes. But it's something to where um, the first book has 255 stories, the second book is 355. So it's almost a total. Um, for almost 600 stories of these little veterans. And that's probably a nickel apiece. <laughs> <laughs> Cheaper than your Superman comics. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but they are riveting. And I just thank you so much for sharing not just your art, but your your soul. I feel like you've shared your soul. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I appreciate it. I love this town. I love what you have offered up to to just speak about these men that have I've admired all my life and, and to have a wonderful town that honors these men, um, you can't do better than that. It's a great holiday gift. Well, thank you.